Okay, well, last week we started Matthew 26 and went through verse 16. Tell me some things you remember about last week and things you learned or things that stuck out to you. Those of you who were here. Yes. Okay. And now he wasn't going to avoid it any longer. We know later on, we'll get into this, the Garden of Gethsemane, he didn't try to flee, did he? No. And he knew it was coming. And he didn't try to stop it. Anyone else? The only way they could take him is by trickery. They couldn't do it out in the open, so they were always trying to find a way to get him away from the crowd. Mm-hmm. And why did they have to do it by trickery? Yeah, he was blameless. I asked you that question. Could the same be said about you? Did, would someone have to take you uh, by trickery? Or are you blameless before the world? Uh, where they couldn't, you know, and First Peter talks about uh, when they <clears throat> say things bad about you, it should be a lie. It should be a lie. It shouldn't be the truth about you. What else? Yeah, it's a, the common man, common laborer's salary was a denarii a day. So this was 300 denarii. And so we took the common man laborers from, from today, about $8 an hour, multiplied by eight hour a day, which is $64 a day. And so we multiply by 300 denarii, you know, 300 times, we've got $19,200. So in today's wage, that's how that's much it would have been worth. And then we, then of course the flask itself, which was also was broken, uh, is worth something as well. So she was willing to to break her best, the most ex- important or most expensive thing in her life. She was willing to break it and consider it as nothing to prepare Jesus for his burial, to do the Lord's will. Yes. India. Sounds right to me. What else? Anything else? What about the contrast between the woman, $19,200, and Judas, 30 pieces of silver? Willing to waste $19,200 upon Jesus in one moment in time. It might have taken her 10 years to save up that much money. And Judas is willing to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. You see the value people put on Jesus. They blaspheme his name. They worship his name. Right? There's a difference. People put value on Jesus. We have to question ourselves. How much value do we put on Jesus? Hopefully none of us would betray him with our words or with our actions for 30 pieces of silver or even less. We saw from that time he saw an opportunity to betray him from that time on. But of course, they want to do it in secret, not out in the open. Okay, anything else anyone wants to bring about from last week? Remember? There was a, another account of the, another woman that mm-hmm. was uh, in Luke, I believe. Yep, Luke 7, yep. There's a different account. But then yep. the account in, uh, was it John? Mm-hmm. That's most likely the same account as the one in uh, Matthew. Right. And the one in Mark, I, I believe, is def- and that's definitely the same account as Matthew. The one in John was kind of up in the air, but it's pretty sure it's the same account as well. Different details, though. <clears throat> okay, well, let's uh, start in verse 17 <clears throat> and read through verse 30. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying to him, 
where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to, to say to him, Lord, is it I? He answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better, it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, You have said it. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the of this fruit of the vine from now until that that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Okay, the first day of the feast of unleavened bread is talked about in Exodus chapter twelve. Yeah, we looked at that a little bit last uh, last week. Uh, why don't we just turn there just for a second so we can kind of see how these things are working. Um, you know, in Christianity, unfortunately, uh, not many of us have studied or know about the festivals. Uh, I personally, this year as a fellowship, I would like to celebrate Passover. And so me and Brother Kevin can talk about that, but I'd like to go and move in that direction and celebrate this because it's a biblical festival. And it reminds us what the Jews went through. And it reminds us what Jesus went through. Uh, it's definitely more biblical than Christmas or Easter or uh, other festivals that Christians typically celebrate. Uh, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. If the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Now that right there, verse 6, is the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay, it's the 14th day of this month, which God is now saying shall be the first month for them. It's the month called Nisan, okay, N-I-S-A-N, in the Jewish calendar. In our calendar, it would be uh, sometime in uh, April, I believe, March or April. So they, they pick out a lamb and on, the, on the 10th day, and on the 14th day, that is when it is killed. That's when the lamb is killed, okay, at twilight. And in verse 7, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorpost and on the lintel of the houses. The lintel is a horizontal beam, once again, where they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. So there's unleavened bread involved, there's the lamb involved, and then there's bitter herbs involved. Now that bitter herb, according to Jewish tradition, is horseradish. Okay? It's not mixed with anything else to dull it down. It's just pure horseradish herbs, powders. Uh, do not eat it raw, nor boiled, talking about the lamb now, do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it, with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste, and it is the Lord's Passover. Now why do you think they had them eaten in haste? That's right. That's right. So verse 11, I believe, wouldn't apply to every pastor that came after it, but applies, obviously, to this pastor because they're getting ready to leave. They have to be ready to go. Uh, and they're eating it standing up, okay, because they're ready to go out the door and leave at a moment's notice, whenever the Lord tells them to. <laughs> For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. 
that the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on, on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. So from the 14th of Nisan to the 21st of Nisan, no leaven is allowed in your household. Okay? On that first day, you shall remove leaven from your houses. And, of course, the ladies who are removing the leaven from the house are doing it all along. They're not waiting till the day beforehand to do it. They're probably going to miss some then. And from what I understand from Jewish tradition, the man is the one who inspects to make sure. How would you like that, wife? Your husband come around inspecting your cleaning, uh, what they're doing. Uh, but that's that's what happened, okay, uh, in Jewish tradition. So, um, middle of verse 15. For whoever eats leavened bread from that first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Very serious thing. Okay, and we'll stop there, um, and let's go back to Matthew. So now you understand what's going on here. It's the first day. This is the day that the lamb is going to be killed at twilight. Okay? And disciples came to him saying, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And this is Jesus' response in verse 18. Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house, my disciples. Now, that's not a very detailed uh, instruction there from Jesus. Uh, you know, let's just imagine he's speaking to Brother Tracy. Brother Tracy, go into uh, Bowling Green, Kentucky, and go to a certain man. Now, how does he know who to go to? He has no idea. Let's go to, to uh, Mark and get some more details here, as Mark often does. And we'll start at verse 13. Mark 14 and verse 13. Now, in, in Matthew, it just says he, he said to his disciples and he sent out his disciples. It doesn't say how many or which ones. It just says in verse 19, so the disciples did. Okay. Now, in verse 13, he says, and he sent out two of his disciples. So only two went. Okay. Which fits just fine with Matthew because disciples is plural and two is plural, isn't it? Uh, and he said to them, go into the city. And here's the more explanation here. And a man you will meet... A man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Now, this is unusual because that was a woman's job in those days. So if you found a man carrying a pitcher of water, it would have been very unusual. There would be very few of these people doing this. And so now it makes it more specific. They're probably like, well, we're going to find a man carrying a pitcher of water? Okay. And so they went in there, uh, and and whoever he goes in, you're supposed to follow him, and wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover of my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared, there make ready for us. Large upper room. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Where else do you see that in Scripture? Yeah. Acts chapter 1 and verse 13. And it's very possible this is the same place they went later. And of course, in Acts 1, if you were to look there, you see there's 120 people, so it has to be a pretty large room. Okay, so it's very possible to say that we don't have any proof that it is, but it's possible it could be. And so he tells them, to, and they find this man. It says in verse 16, so the disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he had said to them. And they prepared the Passover. Now, let's talk about foreknowledge for a second here. Okay, because we have some brothers in Christ uh, who we consider brothers who believe in teaching called open theism. Now, we've talked about this before. Open theism is where uh, a system of theology where they believe God does not know the future free will decisions of man. And they say he couldn't possibly know that because they haven't happened yet. Okay? And they also say if God did know the future free will decisions of man, those men wouldn't be free in their choosing, in their decision making. Okay? The system called open theism says this. Now, they say God is still omniscient, omni meaning all, science meaning knowledge. He still has all knowledge because the future is not something you, anyone can know because it hasn't happened yet. Okay, so this is what open theism teaches. All right? Now, let's apply that to this right here. I want to know if someone is, if you put yourself in the open theist shoes for a second here, how could Jesus possibly know that there would be a man 
walking, because it takes a while to walk from where they were to go into the city. Okay, that they would get there at the right time, where a man is going to walk by uh, with water, carrying a pitcher of water. And that they would be able to follow that same man back to his house, and there would be a large upper room there, and then the master of the house would say, yes, you can have the large upper room for your you and your disciples eat the Passover. Now, how is that possible? There's lots of free will decisions involved there. I mean, for all of you, know that man who, was, who, he, who he thought was going to carry the water, carry, carry a pitcher of water, maybe he decided to stay home. Maybe he decided at that point in time not to carry a pitcher of water. Okay? Maybe um, instead of carrying the pitcher of water back to his master's house, he's going to carry it to a friend's house first. And maybe when he gets to the, the master's house, if all those other things happen as Jesus has said it was going to happen, maybe the master of the house is going to say, no, you can't use my upper room. I will not allow it. So you see all these free will choices people have involved here. Okay, so I don't think open theism can comport with something like this. And not only that, but something we're going to get to here in a second in Matthew 26, it can't comport with that as well. It can't go along with that. It doesn't make sense of what we see happening here in the scripture. It's obviously me that Jesus knew exactly when this man would walk. Jesus sent his disciples at exactly the right time. And he knew that when he went back to the house, he knew he'd go back to the house. And he knew when he got back there, the master of the house would say, yes, you and your disciples can eat here. He knew all those things. And he didn't know them wishy-washy about it. He knew with certainty that it would happen just like this. Otherwise, what he's telling the disciples, it's possible that would not happen as he said it would happen. And then Jesus would be a liar, which he's not. So he found it just as he said to them. All right, let's go back to Matthew 26. No, I'm not just asking you to put yourself in open theist shoes and see how that uh, an open theist could comport that or make sense of that in light of the theology. I don't think they can. You think they can? I agree God is influencing. I agree God is orchestrating. But influence is different than causation. And so for God to for Jesus to speak with any kind of certainty like he is in in um in Luke or is that that was Mark, I'm sorry, that was Mark. Uh to speak with any kind of certainty regarding these things, um he has to be able to know for sure it's gonna happen just as he said it's gonna happen. Now if we're gonna say that he's saying, Well maybe it'll happen this way, maybe it won't then that's doing with influence. Now, the other point you may, which I do believe in, is when it comes to prophecy, that God brings it to pass. He makes it come to pass. Now, this isn't this isn't uh, fulfilling prophecy here. I mean, I don't think Jesus is prophesying. He's just simply telling them what's going to happen. Um, I guess you, maybe you can call it prophecy if you wanted to. But then you're taking away the man, people's free will who are involved in it. You're taking away the free will of the man who's walking with the water, pitcher of water. You're taking away the disciples' free will. You're taking away the man who has a house free will. And they and they and the, and open theists are willing to say that in certain circumstances, they are willing to say that. I don't know of any prophecy I would say that about. Um, one prophecy I could think about would be maybe naming of Cyrus. Maybe I don't know, uh, but but I, I don't think God is taking away free will. I think God is foreseeing future events before they come to pass, and that's different than making these things happen. Uh, God God could do that. He has the power to do that, and he has the freedom to make people do things if he wanted to. But I just don't see that in Scripture. I don't see God doing that in Scripture. I see God using men's free will. He's prophesying about things ahead of time. Even with the case of Cyrus, which they point to, open theists point to, that God takes away his mother's free will or whatever it may be in a situation. Maybe God just knew what his mother was going to name him before he was ever born and just declared it. So... Once again, I don't think how, and I don't separate over people about this open theism issue, uh, but I think it's important enough to teach about it so that you won't be confused about it, won't be detracted over to open theism. 
I think it is an important issue. I don't think it's. I mean, I've had Calvinists tell me, you know, why won't you rebuke the open theists like you you like you rebuke us? And I say, well, I don't think that what they're teaching is is anywhere near as bad as what you're teaching. I think they're un- misunderstand. I think open theists misunderstand the nature of God, whereas Calvinists malign the character of God. And I think open theists, in an attempt, a failed attempt, in my opinion, to vindicate the character of God from any kind of misdoing. They believe in open theism. I think that's, that's probably their starting point, even though they do say they get it from Scripture. So we, we see the situation here. He gives them the details in verse 19. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Now we saw it was disciples in Matthew, it was two disciples in Mark, and in Luke it tells us the exact two disciples. Luke chapter 22 and verse 8. Luke 22 and verse 8. <clears throat> it says, And he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. So disciples, two disciples, Peter and John are two disciples. Now I want to talk a little bit about the sovereignty of God. We've been talking about open theism. I want to talk a little bit about the sovereignty of God here in this situation. Because we know that Judas, according to the last verse we saw last week, they sought, he sought opportunity from that time on to betray Jesus. Now why do you, I mean, this tells me, I think, why Jesus did this setting up the Passover the way he did it. He didn't plan ahead of time, at least not in a human perspective. He, I mean, he might have been planning in a, d- a divine perspective ahead of time. But in a human perspective, he was not pre- uh, preparing ahead of time exactly where they would eat the house, the person's house, because who would have known if he would have done that? Judas would have known. And if Judas would have known, he was seeking opportunity from that time forward to betray him. He would have told the Pharisees or whoever it was to come and come to this house and betray him. And then he wouldn't have finished the Passover with his disciples. And then he would not have instituted the Lord's Supper. See, you see the sovereignty of God. He didn't take Judas' free will away, did he? No, but he, he, he decided where they would eat as they were going along, not ahead of time. And he didn't send Judas to be one of the people to prepare it, did he? He sent, he sent Peter and he sent John. And you see, a, you see a, the hand of the sovereignty of God in this. That God saw a person who would allow Jesus to eat, to eat in his upper room, his guest house. Uh, the same kind of guest house he would have seen uh, before Jesus was born. And we talked about that. There was no room for them at the inn, uh, an upper room. And so <clears throat> he saw someone who would allow this. And he saw how he would allow the disciples to recognize which house to go to. He didn't tell them the name of the person's house. Because guess who was still there when he was saying these things? Judas. And he said, listen, it's this guy's house on Straight Street or on Broadway, you know, wherever place it may be, uh, and his name is, uh, is Paul. Judas would have known. He would have left right then, went straight to the, the Jewish authorities, and they would have met them at the house to betray him. So you see the sovereign hand of God in this. And, and, and although the sovereign hand of God is involved, we don't see sovereignty defined as taking away free will or God forcing things to happen. You see God orchestrating things. So Judas is not able to kill Jesus or betray Jesus before the right time. It goes back to Romans 5, 6. And we're still without strength. In due time, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So timing involved here. And God was orchestrating this, but no free will is taken away in the process. Okay, when evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now, as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, this is this right here, this warning of one of them will betray me, is the first of three warnings at this, at this supper. This is the first one. Okay, And as you see, it's before uh, the institution of the Lord's Supper, which is from verses 26 through 30. It's before that that he gives this warning. Let's go to Luke 22, and let's see the second warning of this. I'm just doing this to give you a chronology of events, give you a time frame here to get you understanding exactly what's going on. Luke chapter 22, and we see in verse 14, starting there, uh, and then starting in verse 17, he talks about the cup uh, and the, the bread, the blood of my new covenant in verse 20. And then this is after the Lord's Supper now, the institution of this, he says, Behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me at the table, on the table. That's the second warning now. 
So we see the first warning before the Lord's Supper, the second warning after the Lord's Supper. And now turn to me with John chapter 13. This is the final one. John chapter 13. Verse 2. It says, And supper being ended. Just give you that verse to give you the context here. And supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Okay, so there's temptation there from the devil for Judas to betray him, even though he's already taken steps to betray him. He's already talked to the Pharisees, talked to the Jewish uh, leaders. Uh, then let's go to, uh, we t- there's a washing of the disciples' feet. And let's skip ahead to verse 20. Most assuredly I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in his spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Okay, so this is the third warning now. Alright? Now, the question I have for you is if Judas has free will, going back to this open theism issue just one more time here for a second, If Judas has free will, and the open theist would agree with that, they wouldn't say this is one of those issues where the open, where the Judas has no free will, or where God's causing it to happen, okay? How does, how can Jesus emphatically say three separate times, one of you will betray me? How can you say that? From the open theist perspective? You can't say that. Not with any kind of certainty. He can say, you know, just I can see what's in your heart right now, and to me it seems like you're going to betray me. But couldn't Judas change his mind? Yeah, he's got free will still. In fact, if you go back to John for a second, it says Satan didn't even enter his heart until after he took uh, John chapter 13 and verse 26. John asked him the question that Peter asked him, asked who, is, who it is. In verse 26, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the the son of Simon. After the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said, what you do, do quickly. So it's not until then that Satan enters him because he submits to temptation. And we see back in verse 2 that there's temptation. It's been put into Judas' heart to betray him. But it's not until then that Satan enters his heart and Jesus says, do it quickly. <clears throat> now, obviously, the place where they went later on, we won't get too much of this now, Gethsemane, he knew that place. They had been there many times, it says in the scripture. And so he knew where they were going to go. Go back to Matthew 26 now. So we see in verse 21, the first warning that one of them betrayed them. And look, look at their response here. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to himself, Lord, is it I? So not one of them expected Judas. Not one of them. And it just goes to show you, people can fool people into thinking there's someone that they're not. They can fool people into believing, I'm a Christian. And when they're around anybody and everybody, even around their own spouse and children, they may be a Christian or act like a Christian. But when they're in secret, and the recess of their heart, which only Jesus could see at this point, God knows what they are and who they are. And so it's always good to examine our own hearts. Examine ourselves concerning these things, lest we be deceived. Judas wasn't deceived about himself, though. He knew what he really was. He knew what he really was. But no one else knew besides Jesus and God. Because he kept it very hidden, very well. To the point... That three years later, after spending day and night together with these other 11 guys, they didn't see it. They didn't catch on. They had no idea. <clears throat> Not, and they, To the point where they even asked, is it I, Lord? Am I the one who's, who's going to betray you? That's how far it went. So we need to always keep before our eyes that God, when, when we're, lit, we're thinking, when we're talking, when we're acting, that God is watching. God knows. Who cares if no one else is watching? Who cares if your parents aren't watching? 
Who cares if your brothers and sisters aren't watching? Who cares if your spouse or your brothers in Christ are not watching? God is always watching. And he knows. No, nothing fools him. Like 2 Timothy 2.19 says. The solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. God knows who are his. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Yeah, you can't fool God. <clears throat> and then it says in verse 23, they said, Lord, is it I? He answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. Now, you need some background on the Jewish feast of Passover here. Because this, this, what Jesus said did not help them at all. Because at this point in, in, the, in the Passover cedar, the order of the Passover, the word cedar in Hebrew means order, the Passover order, they're all dipping in the dish. And what's in the dish? The bitter herbs. And the bitter herbs are a reminder of the slavery in Egypt. And at this point in time, it's a reminder of Jesus' betrayal. That one of them there is going to betray him. And I don't know if you've ever, I've never done it myself, I've heard about it, but have, have you ever taken a unleavened bread, dipped it in and got a spoonful of horseradish on the end of it, and took a bite of it, it's going to make you cry. It's so strong. Uh, one uh, guy from Jews for Jesus said that it'll clean, clean out your sinuses in the back of your head. Okay? Uh, you really have no choice in the matter. You're going to cry. You're going to weep over this. And surely they should be weeping over one of them betraying Jesus. And surely Jesus should weep over uh, one of his own disciples betraying him. And so they're all dipping. So it doesn't help them out. That didn't, that didn't narrow it down. And we saw in John 13 that when he Jesus dipped in and gave it to him, that's when, and even then, he, he, I mean, he spoke this to John. He said, he who I dip and give it in the bread and the sauce and give it to him, it's he. And he gave it to me. Even John didn't understand after reading John 13. He still didn't understand that he was talking about Jesus because he didn't expect Jesus of anything. He didn't suspect him of anything. He thought he was going out to give money to the poor or something like that or buy more things for the, for the festival, for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was held for seven days. And so... We see this uh, this bitter bread being eaten by them. It says in verse 24, The Son of Man indeed goes, this is a written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. So better for Judas if he had never been born. Now what does it mean when it says as, as it is written of him? Well, let's just go to Psalm 41.9 for a second. Now we've talked about this before, so I'm not going to go into too much detail about this. Uh, but this is a parallel prophecy concerning David and Ahithophel, one of his trusted counselors, supposedly trusted counselors, in Psalm 41 and verse 9. And Jesus quotes this in John 13. He quotes this verse in John 13. It says, Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. So David, at one point in time, trusted Ahithophel. Jesus, at one point in time, trusted Judas. And he could be trusted. And we saw that in Matthew 10. We've gone through that many times in this, this fellowship. In Matthew 10, he was trusted with many things. If you want to read more about this story, let's see, it's in, uh, I think it's in 2 Samuel. And... You can read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 15. Let's see here. Make sure I got my scriptures right here. Hold on one second. It's good to have notes. I write them down in my Bible, so I always have them with me. Second uh, Samuel 15 and verse 12 is the first mention of Ahithophel being a part of the conspiracy with Absalom, David's son. And then you can also read about it in chapter 16, 20, verses 17 and verse 4. And I just want to point out a couple things here. Uh, in verse 12 of 2 Samuel 15, it says, Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor, from this city, from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy grew strong 
For the people with Absalom continually increased in number. That's chapter 15 and verse 12 of 2 Samuel. And in 2 Samuel 17 verse, um, I'm sorry, 16. And it says in verse 15 of chapter 16 of 2 Samuel, Meanwhile, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with him. And um, they asked Ahithophel for advice. In verse 21, it says, And Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's house, father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. And all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father, and the hands of all who are with him will be strong. So he's going to his father's concubines and commit adultery with them. And then verse chapter 17, verse 1, Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Now let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. But come upon him while he is weary and weak, and make him afraid. And all the people who are with me, with him, will flee, and I will strike only the king. Does that sound familiar? Judas, who was betraying him, brought soldiers out that outnumbered the soldiers Jesus had with him, and they, he betrayed him when he least expected it, while he was weak. Okay, because Jesus was weak in the garden, and all the people who were with Jesus they fled, didn't they? So you see a lot of parallels here. And the last parallel I want to show to you here is in verse 23. So you see, once again, that uh, a trusted friend of Jesus, Judas, a once trusted friend anyway, betrayed him to his enemies, made a conspiracy against him, was planning to attack him at night. Now, they rege- Absalom rejected the advice of Hithophel, did not do that. And when Hithophel saw that it happened, in verse 23 it says, Now Hithophel saw that his advice was not followed. He sat on a donkey and arose and went home to his house, to his city. He put his house in order and hanged himself and died, and he was buried in his father's tomb. So Hithophel's advice was not followed, and he knew, since it wasn't followed, David was not going to be overthrown, and he knew once David came back into power, uh, he would be killed. So he went and hung himself. And he had worldly sorrow, didn't he? Same kind of worldly sorrow that Judas had. And so that's what Jesus is referring to here when he says, it will go just as the scriptures have written about him. But does those scriptures ever mention Judas by name? And that's why Jesus can say with a clear conscience, woe unto that man who does it, it would be better for him to have never been born. You see, there's no God forcing Judas to do this. There's no predestination involved in that sense. There's a telling of it will happen, on how it will happen as a parallel prophecy. But it doesn't give name. It doesn't mean he's forcing anyone to do it. Okay, verse uh, 25. And Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, you have said it. Now, once again, this is before that last one in, in John 13. So Judas, at this point, I mean, God, Christ has already said to him, he must be sitting right next to him. It must be John on one side and Judas on the other side. Isn't that a contrast? The beloved disciple and the one who's going to betray him. But he must be sitting real close because he says it to him in such a way that none of the other disciples hear because later on they still don't know what he's, where he's leaving for. They still don't know that it's him. So this is earlier on before he institutes the Lord's Supper. And so Judas already knew that Christ had said, yes, it is you. And so when he gives him that bread later on, he submits to the temptation from the devil and goes and does it. Verse 26, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Now, this, there's some interesting stuff going on here that we need to really understand uh, the Passover festival here. And I want to talk about this a little bit now. Okay? In a Passover feast in Jewish tradition, this is not stuff written about in Exodus 12, or even about, I think, in Deuteronomy or Leviticus, but this is what they were doing for centuries before Jesus came along. Okay? Now, they drank from the cup of wine four times. Okay, oftentimes you will hear, when people will explain this, they'll say there's four cups. There's only really only one cup per person, but they drink from it four times. Okay? The first time they drink from the cup is called Kiddush. That's Hebrew for sanctification. Okay? And everything that follows after the drinking of the cup the first time is sanctified and blessed. It's set apart for God. It's saying this is God's will. What we're doing from here on out in the festival, this is godly, it's set apart for God. It's sanctified. Okay. After the first drinking of the cup, uh, 
the greens, they have greens, vegetables that are symbolic of life, and they're dipped in salt water, which is symbolic of tears. Because up to that point in the Passover, they had a life of tears for a long time. Because they were under bondage. And they would eat it. So they have the greens dipped in salt water, which is symbolic of life and tears. And then they have the bread and the bitter herbs, which we've already seen that. Okay, we've seen that. He said, whoever dips his hand with me into the dip. They all did that. And so that's the bitter herbs. And the bitter herbs, which is a horseradish, is, is, which will make you cry, is a reminder of bondage. You have the reminder of tears in the salt water. You have the reminder of, of tears by crying yourself. <clears throat> being able to be sympathetic towards your past descendants who went through what they went through. And we saw in Exodus 12 earlier that this is an eternal festival to be a reminder to them of what they went through. Okay? And then after that, uh, there's a carroset. Uh, I don't do the very good, but it's spelled uh, C-H-A-R-O-S-E-T. Carroset. That's how the Hebrews say it. You don't want to say it to someone's face. You might spit at them while you're saying it, okay? So make sure you're saying it while someone's to your left and your right. Um, but it was it was an apple mixture of apples and cinnamon and stuff that's sweet. And when you eat this, the bitterness goes away. Which is symbolic of now we're getting released from bondage. Okay? So all these things have been done already up to this point. Then there's this, the second time drinking from the cup. It's called the cup of plagues. Now, this cup, you're not actually drinking it, okay? You're dipping your finger in it, and you're dropping it on the plate that's before you. You're doing it ten times for each plague, okay, to remind you. And you're going through the plagues to remind you of all the bloodshed and all the misery the Egyptians went through. As you read through those plagues, you realize that the, the misery that was going on, the Israelites didn't go through it themselves. It was going on all around them, but it didn't happen to them, which is a great picture of what happens during the tribulation. Great picture. Great picture. And actually, it's, it's more proof in my mind that Moses is probably the, the second witness. The two witnesses, he call, they called down plagues upon the world as we know it at that point in time. That's the second cup of plagues. And then it comes something called the matzah Matzah means unleavened bread. Tosh means bag. Okay? The unleavened bread bag. Matzatash. Okay? This is really interesting. Then this matzatash, is a, it's, a, it's a flat bag, because it's got flat bread in it. Okay? And there's three chambers in there, with three pieces of bread in there. These three chambers. Okay? One, two, three chambers. And if you were to ask a rabbi, well, why are there three compartments? They would reason in this way. They'd say, well, maybe because of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Or they may say because of the, the priests, the Levites, and the people. But they don't really know for sure. But I would reason to you, it means the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a triunity. Three pieces of bread, one bag. Okay? And Jews are still doing this to this day. Bear your mind. Okay? So they're still doing this. Now, the first bread is not touched. The third bread is not touched. But the second bread is touched. It's pulled out. It's broken in half. Okay? Half is put back in the bag. The other half is put in a separate linen cloth bag. And it's set aside as hidden for a period of time. Okay? And now they eat. They eat their food. They eat the festival. They eat the, the lamb. Or today's day and age, they might eat turkey. Or they might eat something else. Uh, because they don't have the temple right now. So they have no reason to... What's that? They don't eat lamb. They yes. And the reason I'm saying is because they don't have a temple right now. They have no place to sacrifice the lamb. And so it's a reminder to them that they don't have a temple by eating other meats. But of course, if we were to celebrate ourselves, I think we celebrate with lamb. Or goat. Or goat. But, you know, John the Baptist said the lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. Now, I know in, 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 in Levitical law, or in Exodus 12, they says a lamb or a goat. Um, and that's fine. But um, So anyway, the second piece taken out, it's broken. It's put in a separate linen bag. It's hidden for a period of time. And then they eat the they eat the they eat their, their meal, okay. So after the meal, now we're to the point in verse twenty six, okay. Now, in Jewish tradition, the children who are around during this feast, the, the head of the household went and hid this half piece in a linen cloth and hid it somewhere in the house. 
and now the children are allowed to go and try to find it. Okay? And they bring it back to the head of the house where it finds it, and they get some kind of reward for that. Now, obviously, that's not what happened in Jesus's, because I don't think there's any little children there. Uh, but this still applies. This whole that that part is is something that you would do if you had children. But that still applies. That that's hidden away for a period of time. And now after this, the linen he com- comes back. He takes it out of the linen and begins to break pieces off. Here you go, Peter. Here you go, John. Here you go, Judas. He's breaking it off and he's giving to. Them. Does that sound familiar? Sounds familiar to me. Breaking it off on leavened bread. Now it's interesting. The Jewish people celebrate this every year. Those who are serious about their faith anyway, not just Jewish by lineage. And we have a the middle piece, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is taken out from where the Father and the Holy Spirit are. He's taken out of there. He's broken in half. Okay? He's put in a linen cloth. And what was Jesus buried in? Linen cloth. He's hidden for a period of time. And then he comes out. Okay? So that's what you see going on here. So it helps you get a better picture here of what is actually going on here. Jesus is following in these, these Jewish traditions here. And he's saying to them, and, this, and this, uh, this piece of bread here is called the bread of affliction. That's what it's called by Jewish people. The bread of affliction. Before it's broken in half. Okay? And the part that's put away is called afikoman. Okay, that's what the part that's put away in the linen that's hidden away for a period. It's called a fecomen. And it means it comes later or it means dessert. It's the last thing you eat. The last thing you eat at the meal. So it's called the bread of affliction, which Jesus is about to deal with. Affliction. He says, take, eat, this is my body. This is my body, my bread of affliction. This is... I'm about to go through a lot of affliction here. And I'll, let's just detour here for a second from what I'm talking about at the Passover. And let's talk about what actually happens with, with this, this bread here and this, this juice. Does this, does this bread really come become the body of Jesus? Okay. Roman Catholics would have you believe that when you take this, it actually literally is the body of Jesus. Okay. And the, the wine literally becomes his blood. Okay. Now, tell me, this is, the one that's inst- this is when it's being instituted right here by Jesus. Jesus is in the flesh. Was parts of his flesh like disappearing off of him as they put it in their mouth? Was blood coming out of his body or being drained from his body as they drank the, the cup? Now, so we see from the beginning when it's first instituted, it's symbolic. And, and I think Roman Catholics, they don't understand the background of the Passover here. If they did, they would understand why he's saying what he's saying in situations here. So take eat, this is my body. Now the third cup, third time drinking the cup here in verse 27. He, then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to him. Now the third cup is called the cup of redemption. Imagine that. The cup of redemption. And what happens when Jesus saves you? He redeems you from every lawless deed, Titus 2 says. Every lawless deed. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission. Remission also means forgiveness. Forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit, this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So this, this Passover um, is going to be celebrated, I believe, in the kingdom as well. So we see here, if you understand uh, what's going on here, it makes a lot more sense here. And then the end of the festival, uh, before they sing here in verse 30, there's a fourth cup left out. And this cup is left out for Elijah. We talked about this before when we talked about John the Baptist and who he was and the two witnesses and who they are. And a cup is left out for Elijah. And they actually open the door to see if he'll come in. And I actually believe, I'm leaning toward this anyway, that Elijah, when he's one of the witnesses and he is revealed that he might actually be revealed on this very day. On this first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That he'll be revealed on that day. And that's when he'll begin to talk. And, and we talked about John the Baptist's birth when he was born. Now, if you can think back to then, that was a long time ago, 
Remember me telling you that I believed he was born either on this day or right near this day, and that maybe he came out to get circumcised on the eighth day and may have been this very day. And someone in the spirit and power of Elijah was right there in their midst being circumcised as they sit out a cup for Elijah. And then verse 30, it says, They had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And that's, that's the very end of the festival, uh, or the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They sing Psalm 113 through 118. And you can look at that on your own time later on. Alright, so hopefully this helps you to understand what is really going on here and what is behind uh, what we drink and what we eat and we take the Lord's Supper and what they go through. And hopefully, you know, we different, we all have different ways of learning, our primary ways of learning. Some, some are auditory, some are visual. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I like to see it actually happen before me. So maybe this coming Passover we could celebrate something like this together as a fellowship, and go through the whole thing just as they would have gone through it, including the horseradish, unfortunately, uh, to kind of uh, get a taste in our mouth for what they uh, what they would have gone through. And, of course, I'm not saying we have to celebrate these festivals or that we're trying to become Jewish or that if you don't celebrate this festival, you're in sin or anything like that. Just, you know, if we're going to celebrate festivals, it seems good to me to celebrate ones that are found in the Bible. You know, and, and maybe even getting into... Celebrating Rosh Hashanah, which is the head of the year. The word Rosh Hashanah means the first, the first day of creation. Or the Feast of Tabernacles. Alright. I think I'm going to stop there. Does anyone have questions or anything they want to add? Yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree there's a battle going on. I looked at that, too. That, that, that is definitely beforehand. Right. That's when he first decided to go betray him to the leaders in Luke 22. Um, and so I, definitely that's beforehand. And I, I guess the way I've kind of looked at it is that, you know, Satan is kind of using him. Uh, but, of course, Jesus has given permission to. That has to be... Um, sin. Yeah, sin. A foothold for the devil. And for the Bible says, do not give the devil a foothold. Did you give him a foothold? Remember, I don't know if you remember the children I gave this analogy. I used to fight my sister a lot when I was younger. And I would chase her through the house, and she would run to her bedroom and try to shut the door. And if she got the door shut and then locked the door, I had no way of getting in there and, you know, fighting with her, arguing with her, physically hurting her like I used to try to do. And um, But if I got to that door and got my foot in the doorway with my shoe on, of course, not my bare foot, and got my foot in the doorway, was she going to be able to shut the door now? Now I can barge right in. Now, if she got the door shut and didn't get it locked, I might be able to turn it and get it open. But it would be more difficult. Um, but if she got it shut and she got it locked, it's going to be very difficult for me to get in. So when it comes to her, let's bring us back to our analogy of, of not letting the devil have a foothold. We'd have no foothold in our life to let the devil get in and mess us up. If he gets a foothold, he's going to barge right in. He's going to barge right in. And we saw that uh, one of Judas's sins, at least the one we know of, was stealing. He was a thief. That was a foothold for the devil. And, um, you know, Satan decided to use him uh, for these things. because. And we even talked about before in this, this fellowship about uh, demonic repossession and how if someone gets their house cleaned out, but their house is empty, it's not filled with the Holy Spirit that demon will come back with more demons and make it even worse. And so Satan, uh, he is called, Judas is called, I think, in Acts 1 or 2, he's called the son of perdition. 
The only other person in the scriptures called that is Antichrist. And Antichrist has Satan in him too. And so I think that when Satan comes into someone, he's I mean he's he doesn't have to stay there. He can leave anytime he wants. And I think he, he went into Judas for that period of time in Luke twenty two and then he left him. And then uh obviously there's there's obviously a battle going on actually you see at the beginning of John thirteen, there's a temptation there. He put it into his heart to betray him. And then it says he entered him again. And so he must have left him to if he he wouldn't have said he entered him if he already if he'd already been in there. And so um, there's obviously something going on there. But Judas did not deal with his sin in between Luke 22 and the end of John 13. He didn't deal with it. He allowed it to fester. And so Satan was allowed to enter back into him and fulfill that which he wanted to fulfill through Judas. Yes. Good question. Yeah, another thing I was kind of observing on uh, John 13, 27. Mm-hmm. It says, now after the piece of bread, uh, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what do you do, do quickly. Right. Uh, I always take that as he wasn't really just talking to Jesus. No. He was talking to Satan. Right. Said, what you do, do quickly, right. talking like to Satan. Right. And he's got to obey him, too. Right. He's got to obey him. Right. He's Lord even of the devils. I think maybe that's even a way of Jesus saying, you know, you only got a short time to do whatever it is you're, you're wanting to do. you got a short time, so right. you're going to do it, do it right now. Yeah, I think it's a command because, like I said earlier on, Christ is the Passover lamb. And uh, it says that in 1 Corinthians 5. It says, uh, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So he has to die. I mean, he has to be go, start going through this process the first day. He's a Passover lamb. And so I, I, I take it as him ordering him to do it quickly. And, of course, Satan can use Judas' knowledge of where Jesus is going to be to lead the um, the group of people out to, to arrest Jesus. So, yes, do it quickly. Sure. The first cup is Kiddush, which means sanctification. And so everything from there on out is blessed and sanctified. We're setting apart this time, this festival, this meal for for God. Right, because they they take the same presupposition as the Calvinists that if if God can know the future free will decisions of man that he had to have caused them. That they have no free will if God knows about them. And so the, the Calvinists and the open theists agree on that. And so in order to vindicate God's character, because if God is causing everything that happens to happen, he is, by definition, the author of sin. He is not holy, 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 because there's more sin in the world than there's holiness. Right. It's, it's a philosophical argument. And I think it's bad philosophy because philosophy is philos and sophia, two Greek words, love of wisdom. And where does wisdom come from? It sources God. And if God declares that man has free will in something, even though he knows they're going to do it, then he's not causing it. And you can know the free will of them without causing it to happen. Yeah, I, I agree. But it's a philosophical thing. Um, as far as whether God is causing things to happen or not? Well, it's not necessarily verses they're trying to combat. It's ideas they're trying to combat. But there's lots of verses that people would bring to open theists and say, well, well how does God know, like, Peter's denial three times? I mean, how did, I mean, yeah, God could cause the rooster to crow at a certain time. Okay, we got that. But how does he know that Peter's going to deny him at all, let alone three times? 
I mean, he's given Satan permission to sift Peter as as of as wheat. There's temptation involved there. But how do he know? How does he know Peter's not going to decide to only betray him one time, or two times, or maybe five times? You know, maybe he denies him no times. Maybe he repents before that comes to that point. Um, and so it becomes a probability issue. He'll say something like, "Well, God is so smart that he can see like a chess. He's a smart chess player." Called cosmic, one guy calls it a cosmic chess player in one of his articles he writes about it. That he can see all the moves you're going to make ahead of time before you make them. Okay, but how do you know the chess player is going to choose to make the moves you see he's going to make? You know, so there, there's that issue that we're dealing with there. And so I, I've never heard an open theist uh, deal with these kind of scriptures that, I'm, I'm, that I've brought up about God knowing. I've I've heard them say things about about this and about Peter about other verses I've brought up like in Revelation I don't hear them deal with those things, um, and I, I think that's really one of the reasons why when it comes to Revelation eschatology that open theists are usually amillennialists because it can just like muddy the waters and make things everything symbolic everything is just figurative nothing is literal if nothing is literal Revelation then sure you might be able to make an open theist case for Revelation but when God declares things are going to happen. And that was written in 96 A.D. We're in 2012. These things still haven't happened yet. That's a lot. That's a lot of free will decisions. I mean, they they do have their scriptures. They use Jonah and they use uh, Hezekiah's life being added to him and. They use God being, you know, distraught about the condition of mankind in Genesis six. But I think we have answers for all of those things. Typical answers for those things that make more sense and and, and go along with the rest of Scripture instead of taking a verse here and there and making a doctrine out of it. So. Egypt is usually symbolic with sin, and so is leaven. And so you celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's a time of examining yourself, which is why when we go to the Supper, Paul tells you to examine yourself. Make sure there's no leaven in your life. Um, and don't drink this blood in this, this cup in an unworthy manner. It's a cup of redemption. You know, have you been redeemed, delivered from every lawless deed? So... But I think that having the Jewish background helps give more meaning to what we're doing. And I think a lot of people, they just kind of go through the motions when it comes to these things. And so I think it's a good festival. Not only does it help us to remember the past, and we can go through the plagues and what happened in Exodus, reminded of that story of God's power delivering the Jewish people, <clears throat> out of you, how he's delivered us out of sin, and how eventually he'll deliver us from this wicked world into the new heaven and new earth. Uh, but it reminds them of Christ's sacrifice and getting sin out of our life if there is any, making sure we're being pure before him. And so I'm studying it more and more. I mean, Brother Kevin can talk about it. I'm getting together for that. All right, anybody else? Some of them, uh, we see, have already come to pass. Those, those things that symbolize have already been taking place. And there are some things like what you pointed out with the cup for Elijah that are still future tense. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think we would get a lot out of doing you know, at least one of them, or if, we, if it's convenient that we could even do all of them, yep. uh, we would actually learn a lot from that, I believe. Yeah. So I think it would be a good teaching experience. 
It's good. To, I think it's good, at least for me, it is it's good to actually see it take place rather than just talk about it or read about it. It brings more meaning to it and helps you understand it better. I don't think so. I don't think so. I was looking on their website. I didn't go through all the people who are, you know, leaders or members of them, but most of them are in New York or California or big cities where there's lots of Jewish people. Um, Yeah, I mean... Yeah, there are they do are some who travel around and they'll do like a like a little seminar on how it do, how it goes, but you you can you can watch that video online, a video of him doing that for free. Um, and I did look up places in this area where he's where they're doing them this year or next year, and the closest place was somewhere in Missouri. Well, it's like a six-hour drive. I mean, I'm talking about the very tip, like right where Kentucky and Missouri meet, right around there somewhere, some kind of Baptist church. So, 